0: Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 11, Episode 3 of Scene From Above, an informal podcast about cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out scenefromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes, and follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about land cover and land use. Let's do
1: the news then on the 20th of october planet knocking it out of the park again they had their conference announcing high resolution satellites to um i don't know if it's to replace skysap upgrade is the term yeah upgrade <laughs> the skysap fleet with the to, name to fuse data with sar so they're quite good i think at listening and looking for the technologies and, and and sort of thinking well, are we weak and trying to sort of combine that planet lead the game they're going or have gone public They've got more operational satellites in orbit, delivering data to hundreds of customers. They're really at the top of their game, I think.
0: Uh, One of the things that's interesting for me is they wouldn't be announcing this if they didn't have some customer in place ready for this. You don't put up totally new satellite systems on a whim. It'd be really interesting to know how how it got to this point.
1: I sort of look at the graphic rendering of the Pelican satellite, and it's kind of left to your interpretation, which is that looks bigger than the Doves. It looks like a bigger bus.
0: I'm going to move on and talk about Sisters of SAR, good friends of the podcast who've been on and been interviewed. They now have a dedicated website, really good resource. So it's a little bit about Sisters of SAR, but also the SAR stars are mentioned there. The SAR resource page is really useful, loads and loads of links and things for you to check out.
1: Great, great Sisters of SAR. It's good that the SAR stars especially, that they highlight all these amazing women. Right then, this previous Monday saw the opening up of another MOOC, this time Artificial Intelligence for Earth Monitoring from FutureLearn. Um, I love seeing these things being delivered for free. That means that anybody can join and, and enroll onto these courses. I've enrolled myself and I've done the first two weeks, so I'm a little bit ahead of the ahead of the game in my enthusiasm, but I'm obviously keen to see what's being said. And the first week is really setting the scene, laying out all the different sensors, talking about the platform, and it's using one of the DSs, and that brings us sort of almost full circle to way back couple of years ago when we were talking about what the use of a ds is and this is a fantastic use of the wekio ds that you can jump on and it's got all these jupyter notebooks pre-built for you that you can step through and follow the videos so i'm a huge fan of all that kind of stuff It must have taken an absolute monumental effort to put together because there's so many contributors. The videos are so well edited. It goes from a huge diversity of people, loads of people that we've spoken to on the podcast before, so huge credit to them. And if you've you've got the the time, then
0: do give it a go. That's an amazing list of contributors there. Yeah. You're highly unlikely to get them all in the room at the same time teaching you something. Even on the homepage where they've listed the seven people, there's way more than seven people involved in this. Right, okay. Way more. Yeah. It is really good. So I just want to highlight a conference. Well, it's probably more than a conference, but Living Planet Symposium is back for 2022, and it's going to be in Bonn between the 23rd and the 27th of May. Make sure you block that date out. Um, Just before you go on to your final few things in the news, I'm going to jump in and talk about something I found on GitHub, which is a repository called Demeter. And this is some code that acts as a land use and land cover disaggregation and change detection model. So it's quite specific, but I thought based on what we are talking about in the episode today, having that sort of link to land use and land cover, it's quite relevant. This is basically a Python package that has been created to try and disaggregate projections of future land allocations that have been generated by earth systems models so like I say it's very very specific and I can't imagine there's a vast number of people out there who will be using this on a day-to-day basis but um, it looks really interesting and it's it's got a really good, quite comprehensive readme page. How did you come across it? I can't remember, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things where it suddenly popped up and I went, hmm, that looks good. Okay, well, maybe I need to add that to uh, awesome F observation
1: code. Okay, so trying to briefly sum up all the other things that have been going on. The OpenEO platform, so that's been launched. Ooh, yeah, big news. Uh, so, yeah, it is quite big news. It's calling for early adopters now and ESA is sponsoring people to use or apply to use it. So... I believe it was launched during Fire Week. It's all part, again, of this ecosystem, and we're going to have to discuss this at some point when it starts to calm down, because there's just a huge volume of choice now that, that you have. We've, we've kind of centred on processing code through Jupyter and using Python or R as, as the main languages. Obviously, it's got a lot of backing for from, from me, sir. Um, yeah, on, on that kind of theme, Earth Engine almost sort of quietly via the back door released this blog post called Helping companies tackle climate change with Earth Engine. And in that, it says basically that we're going to make Earth Engine more available to the public sector. So you can apply to use it uh, non-commercially.
0: That's, that's pretty big news, isn't it? I mean, yeah.
1: So today we're expanding Earth Engine with a commercial offering for select customers in preview as part of its integration with the Google Cloud platform. Organizations in the public sector and businesses can now use Earth Engine to solve sustainability-related problems.
0: I'm guessing this is in part in response to Microsoft's planetary computer. You know, it seems odd that this has suddenly come about now, especially the integration with Google Cloud and and stuff like that. Yeah, it would be interesting to see where this goes.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like keeping up with the Joneses now, isn't it? The speed of ingestion of data will be one of the key differentiators in what platform gets used in the end. We're, We're in that kind of interesting point where we haven't just got one platform anymore. We've got, several and obviously open eo platform is, a, is, a, is another and there's open data cube and and etc and etc et um and there are some other things going on that actually happened today but i think we may keep that back for next time because there's so much but i just wanted to take a slight step to the side and getting to the bottom of web map performance is the blog that caught my eye this month and basically it's saying what can we learn from pc gaming or computer game performance in relation to delivering web maps. This is the sort of technicality of how the map is rendered. And there's lots of examples um, with leaflet and and talking about zooming and you know, using WebGL and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure there's many people more familiar with that than than I am. But the most interesting thing is he's done a really good job of summarizing it at the end, saying good reasons to go with real-time rendering, i.e. computer gaming-based rendering, and then there's other good reasons to use Leaflet instead.
0: It's it's a really fascinating blog, and I I think you're right. There's a whole host of things around user experience that maybe we should try and get someone on to have a discussion with i guess user experience is generally an an overlooked part of what we do in earth observation it's usually all about how can we leverage the data etc etc yeah interesting cool and that's it for the news brilliant so this episode we're really lucky to have steve rumbry with us from uh, impact observatory Steve, before we get into the topic that we're going to be talking about, which is land cover and land use, maybe you could introduce yourself.
2: Sure. Thank you. And really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to join you. So I'm Steve Brumby. I'm the CEO and CTO of Impact Observatory, which is a small company based in Washington, DC, but scattered around the United States that is focused on machine learning applied to remotely sensed imagery time series, which we're using to make maps and change detection products that can help all sorts of people make better data-driven decisions.
0: What was it that made you think that now was the time for AI and machine learning and that you wanted to get into that space, as it were?
2: I've been in this space for actually about 20 years. So 20 years ago, I was a young physics postdoc with my PhD from an Australian university, University of Melbourne. And I arrived in the United States uh, and started work at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico to apply machine learning to imagery of the sky, of other planets and also of the Earth. And uh, this this work that I started back then, uh, it led to a system called GENIE, G-E-N-I-E, that was one of the first of its kind of an automated system for making maps from satellite data using a machine learning algorithm. And over the years, we learned how to make maps to, to apply to real world problems. My team, I worked my way up to senior research scientists and built a team that Got in at the start of deep learning when it was just taking off and uh, had an opportunity to start a company called Descartes Labs. I was the technical founder of Descartes Labs to uh, do agricultural forecasting from space. For the last few years, I actually switched back to NGOs and uh, was doing conservation and environmental monitoring at National Geographic Society. And uh, about a year ago, I built a new team. And we saw there was a real opportunity to do instead of narrow things like, say, agricultural crop forecasting, to get into a new area, which is broad landscape environmental risk assessment and environmental risk monitoring and forecasting. And based on a key technology development that happened while we were at LandGeo, we had the chance to start Impact Observatory about a year ago.
0: That is an amazing career, got to say. <laughs> That's Thank really you. Um, we came across you um, a few months ago in terms of the land use land cover map that being announced on Twitter. Yes. I wonder if you could maybe just give uh, listeners a quick overview of of that product, because I mean, it's a 10 meter product, right?
2: Yes. What we released in June with major funding from Esri and with a lot of support from Microsoft with their new planetary computer, what we released in June was a 10 meter land use land cover map, 10 category map. Um, There was produced using Copernicus Sentinel-2 satellite imagery, so multispectral imagery, so visible red, green, blue, but also near-infrared and what's called shortwave infrared bands that let the computer learn, not just from individual pixels, what it's looking at, but actually from the spatial neighborhoods of pixels as well. So in a very sort of human-like way, the deep learning algorithm is trained to understand the colors and textures Of different land cover categories. And by looking at not just an individual cloud-free scene per spot on the Earth's surface, but by actually looking at lots of pictures over the course of a year, you can form a really good, we we believe, a really good consensus estimate of the annual land cover and land use category um, in this 10-category taxonomy at global scale.
0: That's really cool. How did you come up with the taxonomy?
2: So the taxonomy is actually a standard taxonomy. So the U.S. geological Survey has a standard product that they call LC-MAP. LC-MAP, which sounds like land cover map, is actually an acronym. The idea of it is that it's a model-based approach for not just doing land cover or land use estimate for a single point in time, but for change detection as well. So the taxonomy we chose was one that would be designed for global land use, land cover, and change. The the real trick was actually with the training data. But anyway, that's, that's the taxonomy question. And the, the other thing about the taxonomy is that the taxonomy is designed to be hierarchical. So at the moment, we're just finding trees. But it's designed, there's a number of these categorizations of the land. The European Union has one called the Lucas categorization. The USGS has one called the Anderson hierarchical categoriz- taxonomy that lets you split. So trees become deciduous and evergreen. Um, rangeland becomes scrubland and and uh, grasslands um wetlands turns into forested wetlands and herbaceous wetlands there's a there's a whole pyramid of categories that can be broken out in the future but that they roll up to these top level categories
1: do you want to enlighten me on what well on what the uh, the training data trick was <laughs>
2: yeah so the basic trick on the on the training data can be summed up in the word more right. you need lots of training yeah to achieve a deep learning algorithm that is robust and can work pretty well much anywhere in the world, right? So when we started, we came up with an estimate that we would need to produce something like a billion pixels, human-labeled pixels of training data to make it work, which we estimated would be 10,000 times larger than the previously largest existing training data set. So before we got started, there's a very large data set that was created by Peng Gong and, and colleagues at University of Tsinghua. And then, there's a, um, and then there's also the Big EarthNet produced by a European group. And both of those are of the order of several hundred thousand labels. Um, the Chinese team produced individual pixel labels. The Big EarthNet folks, is, to the best of my knowledge, produce labels per patch. It's like, here's a chunk of tile and tell me what's the label. What well, we did, and as we, we talk about in our paper that goes with the map, we did dense labeling. So if you're going to teach computers to understand texture as well as color, at a pixel you need dense labeling and it and it it is just a tremendous slog to get enough data we use the national geographic society connection to um recruit experts that then train a crowd and and have everybody check each other and uh and so we have this like hierarchy of like because it's an interesting question how well can humans actually do this job of photo interpretation so anyway so there's a paper coming that has like a really detailed breakdown of of the training data set and how we how we cross verified everything. And at the end of the day, we were a bit extra and we ended up with 5 billion human-labeled
1: pixels. Five billion. Wow. <laughs> can't even comprehend that size of number. How do you get to the point where you decide that that's it? That's the point where you ship, for want of a better word, or which would be even more amazing, could it ever be a live product? The first part
2: of it is what's good enough? So the first thing you can do there is you can look at what do other standards map products claim is their overall accuracy. And so, for example, the uh, European Space Agency funds a program called WorldCover that announced that they were going to try and achieve a global accuracy for approximately 10 category land use land cover. Their target was 75% overall accuracy. Um, there's a proprietary product produced by Maxar. It was originally made by MDA Federal called BaseView. And uh, BaseView also had claims and accuracy of about 80%, 85% overall. And so that was sort of the, that was the uh, that, that's, that's the benchmark. If you can hit that, you're achieving as much as anybody else has ever achieved. And those other techniques, especially the BaseView technique, is well known to be quite labor intensive. There's an automated bit, but then there's a human bit. So the question is, how well can a fully automated machine approach go? And can it achieve something comparable to what's achieved by these other techniques. And we're very happy to report that uh, the final thing that was published, the map we got to, we got to 86% accuracy with this fully automated technique. And at that point, the thinking was, yeah, we can we can all be perfectionist scientists and worry about what people are going to say about. it. And you have to be worried about it because you know, like it, it you want to make sure that people are using the map for for fit for, you know, that it's fit for purpose. Yeah. But really, the only way to get that sort of feedback is to take the chance and release it. Yeah. And then invite people to give you feedback so that you can learn how to make it better. So we're very happy to announce that the, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, actually became, it was announced that UN Development Program and UN Environment Program have accepted the, the ESRI 2020 land cover map made by Impact Observatory. And it's been approved for use on the new UN Biodiversity Lab platform, which is a UN system that's uh, provided to all the world governments to help them with their decision-making. And it went through a like a you know scientific re- review committee to be accepted onto that
1: platform. Amazing. I mean, I guess from a sort of business point of view, you don't want to sort of say, or oh, to get another half a percent accuracy, you don't want to throw another 10,000 hours of compute at it. Look, the final part of that question earlier was, Do you think it could ever be live? When I say live, you know, you you get maybe a monthly update coming down because that would really help decision makers, I I would imagine. So this speaks
2: now to the question of the compute cost of running the the model. We were very fortunate to be invited by Microsoft to be early users of the planetary computer, which is just recently stocked with the complete Sentinel archive that had been very nicely pre-processed by ESRI to be at the collection two standard of that surface reflectance. So it's the, it's the best scientific grade analysis ready Sentinel data, Sentinel-2 data. And there were still like big questions about how expensive was it gonna to be to generate the global map? Um, and how long was it gonna to take to make it? And some of my co-founders in particular, Mark Mathis, who has actually worked with me over the years since we were both at, at the US National Labs and a key person on his team, Zoe statman wheel Zoe and Mark figured out how to run this very efficiently on the planetary computer. And in fact, there's a Microsoft Azure blog post about what they did that uh, describes how we figured out how to run 450,000 Sentinel-2 scenes, which is basically 20 Earth's worth of land surface area through the machine. And it completed in under a week and was done very efficiently. It was, it was like we, we basically figured out how to use available compute to get it done in a way that Microsoft Azure didn't even notice.
1: So weekly updates then?
2: (laughs) Yes, the capability of doing continuously updated mapping is now here. So that's massive.
0: It absolutely blows my mind that we're having this conversation in such a relaxed way when (laughs) when I remember it taking like, I don't know, about... Twelve hours for my one ers two scene to process.
2: Five years ago, when I was starting Descartes Labs, six years ago when I started Descartes Labs, one of our early hires had just finished her PhD in looking at uh, rice production in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. And over the course of her PhD, she she'd processed something like a hundred Landsat scenes, and she'd achieved some really interesting results on understanding how many crops per year were being grown on both sides of the border between Vietnam and Cambodia and the, in the Mekong Delta. And then we showed her what we were cooking up at Descartes. And she said after she told me later, because we hired her because she was extremely good. Later, she told me that like she was shocked at just how much more she could have done if she'd had access to this. And I'm very happy to say the person who did that at Descartes is, is Dr. Caitlin Conscious, who's, who's now the head of science and machine learning at Impact Observatory. And just like as just blasély over the last couple of months, Actually, I'll, I'll give you a little media exclusive here on this podcast. Hey. In addition to the 2020 map, we are now very close to releasing the global time series of, of annual 10-meter maps. So 2018 onwards. Oh, wow. Oh,
0: that's amazing.
2: And these will also become available for free um, immediately on Planetary Computer and uh, Esri Living Atlas and also on the U.N.
0: You've mentioned the UN a few times. Is is that a real thing for you now that you want to be able to provide them with really good data that they can trust, that governments can use, that can really actually make a difference? We need to stop talking about how data is great and more about how data can actually make a difference in terms of some of the impactful decisions that need to be made because we're destroying the planet so much, we need to use those data in a much more proactive way, I guess.
2: Thanks to my time at National Geographic, I had a great opportunity to meet a number of folks in UN. So not so fun fact, after the uh, Aichi Convention, one of the big biodiversity convention meetings about 10 years ago, um, it took the international community five years to figure out how they were gonna start to measure the the things that they would decided upon at Aichi. And the scientific community realizes we cannot afford to mess around like that anymore. And so, a week or two ago, there was the first half of the Convention on Biological Diversity's COP meeting in in China. Um, The second half of it will happen next year in April in Kunming. Um, And, uh, you know, the world is looking for the international community to set itself some real targets on trying to avoid biodiversity collapse which you know doesn't sound great and it's not and a key element of this is going to be giving every country the sort of data and tools it needs to make better decisions and then arming the international community you know like providing an open transparent set of data that will allow NGOs concerned citizens international organizations to see the impact to you know to to play on that name of my company to observe the impact of their actions. My career has been building advanced technology like this 15 years ago for US government, and then five years ago it was building tech like this for Wall Street, where really only a few Wall Street players got to use this data. And now we're trying to, with Impact Observatory and our partnerships with UN and with Microsoft and with Esri, we're looking to democratize this technology and make it just
1: freely available to country governments to especially the developing world. Do you think it's possible or achievable when you get into the land use cover map, do you think in the future you'll be able to zoom in and the classes will start exploding out for you that you'll go, you'll get in a better detail? So as you zoom in and as you start to bring in other data sets,
2: so for example, we are currently using Sentinel-2, uh, NICFI, the big Norwegian fund, have announced a major deal with Planet yep. to make of Planet Labs data available through the tropics because they're particularly worried about um, deforestation and the risk of the Amazon forest hitting a tipping point and various other doomsday disasters stuff that sounds terrible and is terrible. And, uh, you know, and and providing the right players, the right data at the right time could actually help avert that. And so, you know, Planet and Nick Fee made a big deal about how to get data out there so that For non-commercial use, it can be used to to sort of support finer and finer analysis um, for a reduced geography, because this is just forests in the tropics. And yeah, I, I think that we're on a path here where it's now going to be feasible for different organizations to be able to expect maps of progressively finer spatial resolution and finer taxonomic resolution as you cover different geographies and be able to address the questions that are
1: unique to areas. Do you find that the users taking UN as an example, are they they happy with the sort of dashboard interactive map approach? Do you get a sense of how people are using the data? So so I I keep mentioning Nat Geo because I I find that I learned a lot
2: at National Geographic Society, working with conservationists that were operating in lots of the world, trying to work with local communities and provide them the data that they needed to influence policy and get better behavior from the international community. And the, the key thing was that yes, It's one thing to provide people with a map, because I think we all agree that pixels aren't an answer. You need to get to an answer. But I I love pixels and I also love maps, but even a map is not really an answer to somebody's question. Um, In talking to a lot of folks who are geospatial analysts in different country governments, the questions would tend to be like, okay, just tell me for this polygon, how much deforestation is happening? Or for this watershed, how much wetland has been lost in this time window? And so, if you actually so if you look at unbiodiversitylab.org, which is the new thing that just launched under UN, and I'll I'll, I'll say Impact Observatory built the system as well as some of the key data sets that's on that on that website, on that app, um, you'll see that we're not just providing the data, which will now become an automated updating land cover data set. But we've also implemented this idea of continually updated metrics. And we're working with UN and other scientific organizations to identify what are the key metrics that are called out in the different international conventions. And how can we, instead of requiring every country government to have its own people that does the same calculation over and over again, can we actually operationalize all of that as just some code and just provide them with the internationally defined metrics? Um, and just provide it so that a non-geospatial expert can leverage the power of the geospatial data.
1: Yeah, because once there's consensus and agreement that this is scientifically valid data, then you've got that as your evidence that you could draw back on to say, look, this is where the statistics, if you need those statistics, if you need that evidence, but this is what you're asking for and you can always refer back to it. Whereas in the geospatial world, we like to present everything and then the user has to then go and extract it
2: we work with the big international organizations like UN and uh, UNDP and UNEP. We've started to work with some of the really big environmental NGOs that also help country governments and companies try and understand, okay, this is the best scientific approach for measuring the impact of their actions. For a long time, quite frankly, industry has lobbied against regulation that would constrain their impact on the natural world. And literally the world can't afford that anymore people think of the sticks, but in terms of carrots, there's a lot of investors who would like to know that they're putting their money against companies who are doing the right thing, yeah. or at least trending towards doing the right thing. Being able to produce the right sort of data that lets companies without greenwashing show that they are actually doing the right thing. Um, they The first companies in the first countries that can show that they're doing the right thing are going to reap benefits from green sensitive investors including sovereign funds that want to that want to be part of the solution and not just make some money on the on the, the old fashioned gray fossil economy
0: it seems from listening to you, particularly at the beginning when you were going through your career, but also all of the tech that you've mentioned uh, in the, the last few questions as well, it seems that you've always made a point of being there and using the latest technology in order to to try and push it and and get something new in terms of an answer. So is there a, a technology out there at the moment that you are sort of got half an eye on that you're thinking, oh, in five years time, maybe I'll be pushing that? Or is there anything that you really wish you were playing with at the the moment
2: on the software side one thing i'll say that is a really interesting development in the last few years is the real maturation of open standards for dealing with geospatial data sets at large scale so the stack and cog community of um open access and you know um it's just they're, they're contributing a tremendous amount to making the world's scientific data discoverable and explorable and easily accessible. And I think that's a huge thing. And it's the next logical step from the big work that was done a number of years ago to unlock some of the government satellite imagery archives. Now now we're on to the next phase of that. So that's exciting. And there's a lot of implications of that that are only still just being figured out at the moment. The other thing that I think is very exciting is, uh, you know, like we we all talk about electro-optical imagery, so visible, infrared, and um, and there's quite a bit to talk about synthetic aperture radar. But the thing to watch, I would argue, for the next five years is the even the slightly more exotic satellite data sets, which are feasible, that is going to start to appear. In particular, hyperspectral imagery that allows you to measure chemical signatures almost from space by using hundreds of, of spectral bands. And I think... LIDAR is and uh, because you know the world surface is not flat it's not a flat globe it's actually bumpy and you need to be able to measure those bumps and those bumps tells you all sorts of things so having more and better LIDAR systems having hyperspectral imaging systems that can help with really identifying fine-grained materials this stuff is coming it's been in R&D for a long time and it's finally becoming commercially viable and that would be stuff to watch.
0: Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been yeah. genuinely enlightening uh, speaking to you. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank
2: you. And, and if I can just add one last quick thing. When my team and I, when we heard the news article that uh, the Seen from Above podcast did at the launch of the map, uh, you used a very British term towards the end of the thing. You described it as a stonking product. Uh, I'm originally from Australia, so I understood what you were saying. But most of my American team had no idea what that meant. But they had the sense that it was good. And i like to say thank you very much. That was an awesome compliment.
0: We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Nice to hear you